coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Actually, going back to that piece where I was sharing, I don't, I don't call myself a healer. I think of myself more than anything as a transformational or spiritual doula or midwife. And really, if we want to anchor in more deeply into the doula piece, the connection between in the birthing world between a doula and a midwife, the midwife is the one who has the medical licensure who has gone to nursing school and can perform certain procedures, so to speak, just like an obstetrician. And the doula is the peer-to-peer emotional support for the woman. And so I'm really curious if we in the therapeutic world can start to see this pairing as powerful between the therapist and the doula, so to speak, so that we don't always need two therapists in the room for, say, the MAPS protocol and other protocols, and that that doula can also move forward with the person on more of a, again, kind of coaching capacity to support them to really integrate and to, you know, be accountable And I think that there's a lot of ways to get creative, to have community support that also still is, you know, being overseen, so to speak, by, you know, therapists and people who are really well-trained in this way. Um, But I think we're going to start to move into more community-led models moving forward. And that, to me, feels like a good way to make sure these things stay accessible. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Today I'm speaking with a spiritual doula, Maria Teresa Chavez. The former therapeutic director of Crossroads Ibogaine Treatment Center has gone all in on integration. On the show, we talk about her work at Crossroads and the particular therapeutic qualities of Ibogaine from the West African Iboga plant and 5-MeO-DMT from the Sonoran Desert Toad, which were administered at Crossroads in tandem. We discuss Maria's own story of healing, including the psychedelic San Pedro cactus and the purgative combo frog. Most importantly, we talk about the healing power of nature and meditation and the profound importance of integration. Maria is a transformational and spiritual doula, a holistic health coach, and an educator with 16 years of expertise in the metaphysical and holistic lifestyle fields. In addition to her work at Crossroads, she is the founder of Sacred Earth Warriors, a transformational healing event and retreat company. Pairing her Peruvian and Venezuelan heritage and background of shamanic plant medicine work, she brings a reverence for the land and aspects of ceremony into all her offerings. And now, here's Maria Teresa Chavez. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's really a joy to have you on the show. And you have some really deep, rich experience that I think will be of great service to anyone who's interested in psychedelic therapy or healing generally. So I'm really honored to have some of your time to share some of what you've learned in your life and in your work. And I think the people listening are really going to get a lot out of it. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It feels wonderful to be here. And just to get started today and to kind of ground our listeners in your experience. Now, they will have heard in the intro your work with Crossroads, but I think maybe a great place to just just ground us in the work that you've done would be to just, what is Crossroads? So yes, Crossroads Ibogaine Center. We always refer to it as, as the clinic, essentially. It was in Tijuana, Mexico. It is no longer open in the same capacity as it was, but it was an addiction center, essentially. And so the main goal for our addiction program was to bring people who were dealing with mainly opiate addictions, whether it's heroin or pharmaceutical pills, and detoxing them 
through the use of ibogaine, which is a derivative of the African root bark iboga, and 5-MeO-DMT, which we were using the Bufo alvarius, which is the natural form that comes from the toad, sometimes known as the toad. And as far as I know, we were the first ones to really introduce that combination of the ibogaine with the 5-MeO. And so again, a week-long program for the detox. And then we also had a psycho-spiritual program, which was on the weekend. And that was really just for anybody who wanted to come down and experience these two very potent medicines in a, in a very safe environment. So we had two different locations. One was the clinic that was downtown Tijuana, right across the street from the hospital. And that was a, a very kind of equipped medical center to administer the ibogaine itself. And we, you know, each uh, patient or participant was uh, attached or, you know, connected to a heart monitor machine so that their heart rates could be monitored all night long and had an IV port just in case they needed any fluids or or nutrition that way. And then the beach house, which was in Rosarito, and that was a really beautiful kind of three-story villa-esque <laughs> space where we would kind of prepare people before the ibogaine treatment and then bring them back for integration and to relax and to rest and prepare for their 5-MEO experience before they went home. Mm. And so the protocol was always Iboga followed by 5-MeO-DMT? Yeah, the ibogaine was always first. And again, knowing that the the main, you know, Dr. Martin Polanco, who is the founder of that clinic, uh, along with our medical director, Dr. Dan Ingall, and with a lot of support from Deanne Adamson, who has her own company called Being True to You, the three of them created this beautiful um, kind of program and format. And, you know, Dr. Polanco, his first experience with ibogaine was actually with his sister. She had some addiction issues when she was young and he was introduced to this as a format of treatment for her, saw the impact it had on her life and then decided to open a clinic. So that that program and protocol for addiction in particular, iboga and in this situation ibogaine is a very effective treatment really powerful reset for the brain, for all the receptor sites to really kind of clean out the old gunk from the chemicals (laughs) and give somebody a really good shot at moving forward without all of the discomfort of the withdrawals and those type of things. And that's not to say that the abogaine is pleasant by any means, because for most people it's not. It's quite arduous. Uh, But on the other side, there's none to very little of those kind of lingering effects of people who do any other sort of of detox. So yeah, putting that together, that very, again, arduous excavation process with the power of the 5-MEO, you know, that kind of, well, they're both so powerful, but in this this situation, the 5-MEO is known often as as the God molecule or the breath of God. And it's usually or can be a very spiritual and kind of ethereal cosmic uh, you know reconnection to the oneness experience for people so they pair really well together even though they're really complete opposites in a lot of ways yeah they do really seem like they are opposites in the sense that the um, iboga in this case ibogaine is deep body roots in and long, mm-hmm. you know, it can be hours and hours. I, I, I imagine that ibogaine maybe has a shorter life than iboga in the system, or is it the same amount of time? Yeah, I don't. It, for some people, again, it depends how they metabolize, because you know, when you take the root bark, at least you know, if you're not in <laughs> Africa, the root, the bark is dried, right? So even if you take a lot, it's going to go sit in your tummy and need to be kind of digested, so it can sometimes mm-hmm. elongate the experience of the body's uptake. And the ibogaine comes in little capsules because it is essentially synthesized in a lab, so it's a, it's kind of a quicker metabolism for you know uptaking it so to speak and yet it's still you know that full night the full next day is the gray day and then not until the third day are you kind of back fully 
Yeah, so this this deep, rich, long excavation, followed by the 5-MeO-DMT, which I, I like to joke that it's like speed dating with God. You get mm. blasted into the cosmic and and that space may may feel infinite in, in, its, in its majesty and its oceanic sweeping quality, but actually the experience, you know, you're back where you started in 15, 20 minutes. So it seems like these are the two... In my experience, the two biggest heavyweights in the realm of psychedelic healing, and they're yeah, they're total opposites. So I think it's really interesting to have have paired the two. Um, in in your experience, you were you were mentioning something about ibogaine for addiction, and um, I think those who are familiar with ibogaine are familiar with its efficacy in treating opiate addiction, and that it does actually bind with opioid receptors in the brain. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it provides the patient or client or the experiencer a really deep excavation of self. And I'm curious how you feel those two pieces work in terms of the healing process. The actual pharmacological experience of the ibogaine in the body, what's happening and as you said, clearing out the gunk <laughs> in, the, in the receptors, that, that, you know, the, in the science of the brain versus the actual narrative experience of winding yourself down to the root of a trauma or a problem and being able to see where it comes from. Do you see these as kind of parallel aspects of the medicine or do you think one could happen without the other? Could you have that pharmacological experience without going through the personal mythology and one's own history and childhood? Mm. How do those two pieces work together in terms of the ibogaine or iboga experience? Yeah, well, I really feel, even though I don't like to put the medicines on any sort of hierarchies, because I think they all have just such a, you know, their 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 lane, so to speak. Each one is so powerful in its own right. And I do have a really deep connection with the spirit of all of the natural medicines, to be honest. I've really been uh, exploring with them for a long time. But I will say that the, the magic... Of iboga in particular, although a lot of the natural medicines do this, of working physiologically at the same time as they're working spiritually and emotionally. And that honestly is why I believe this podcast is happening. And you know, so many of us are so focused on this, this realm of healing. Because I think at this point, a lot of us identify addiction as just a symptom. You know, these are what I would call in a very simplistic way, maladaptive coping skills and trauma responses. And I'm not negating that we have, you know, some of us do have greater genetic kind of propensity for certain things, of course. But I do really believe that it's very similar to the epigenetics of we may all have that switch that's sitting there dormant, but does it get switched on or not? In that switch, I I've, have found, usually is either a very traumatic experience or just a really strong narrative that has gotten so embedded in the psyche, in the subconscious or the unconscious that we're not even aware that that is our just non-stop hamster wheel of how we're looking at life, what we believe to be true about life itself. Uh, are we safe here? <laughs> you know, who's running this whole thing? Are we allowed to be happy? You know, are we lovable? All of these things that I believe the majority of humans we kind of have these really underlying. So it's really hard to ever touch those narratives or those questions when we're completely lost in a sea of addiction, for example, in this particular case that we're using. And so for people who are you know, really deep down with alcoholism or with pills or with heroin or whatever the, the kind of drug of choice is, the ability to kind of take that away, so to speak, so that we can do the deeper work is really important. And yet for a lot of people doing those separately can be terrifying because it's like we're going to take away the safety blanket for a second and then ask you to look at the really deep, dark, hard stuff. And the medicines have such an innate intelligence and ability to support us to do both at the same time. 
So again, with the ibogaine or the iboga, it's like, okay, you're going to go in and your body's going to get totally reset. Your brain is going to get totally reset. And at the same time, you're going to have an opportunity to again really look at that deep, dark stuff that most of us will do anything to avoid. And once you've taken that medicine, there's no avoiding <laughs> You literally are in a healing coma. You know, your body is kind of pinned to the ground and you are just, you know, you're in it. You're in for the ride. And yeah, so I believe that those two are happening simultaneously. And yes, for a lot of people who don't have access to the medicine or they are not eligible, so to speak, for whatever reason, you know, you and I have talked a bit about this. I do believe that there are other ways up the mountain for sure. And that none of these are magic pills, you know, you can do, I've done three, for example, really deep dive journeys with Iboga with the root bark itself. And so much has changed. And yet I'm still a human being. I still have to, you know, put my little foot in front of the other every single day (laughs) and do what's mine to do to implement the information. And so... Yeah. When I had my experience with Iboga in Africa, which you were one of my advisors going into that experience, and for that I'm very grateful, I was told in preparation for that experience that there is no such thing as addiction, that addiction is simply the compensation to deep trauma, Mm -hmm. that when you have a traumatic experience, you compensate for it and you end up in a pattern of avoiding that pain mm-hmm. and then that's what addiction is and that iboga will or in this case ibogaine will take you to the core of that wound take you to the root so to speak and that was very much my experience in doing it and I didn't have the experience of doing 5-MeO-DMT afterwards I did my experience with the buiti um, but I did have the experience of feeling like a newborn puppy mm-hmm. the next day like I felt or not the next day but when the, when the journey was complete just that there was no tension anywhere in my body and then to bring that into what you've just expressed here is that it wasn't a silver bullet for me either. Mm-hmm. It was, in many senses, a deeper understanding that led to a more responsible approach to integration and to weaving what I learned into my, into my day-to-day life. And I know that integration is a very important piece for you, which we'll speak a lot about today during our conversation. Mm-hmm. But before we do, um, I'd love to start with your journey to psychedelic medicine. Um, because as I understand it, you are in part, you hold the archetype of the wounded healer in that your pursuit of your own healing has led you to understand deeply these medicines and then be able to heal others. Do you see yourself that way through the archetype of the wounded healer in terms of your journey to medicine? Well, to be fully honest, I don't think of myself as a healer. Ah, well played. Mm-hmm. I think of myself as a cultural anthropologist <laughs> and an explorer and someone who really has has walked a lot of miles, so to speak, you know, in this lifetime, in the skin so far. And yes, my beginning was definitely through a lot of pain. You know, of course not, you know, in my particular childhood, I had a sweet childhood you know, very middle class, pretty normal from the outside, but inside, just as many of us do behind closed doors and whatnot, you know, my parents did fight quite a bit and they both worked full time out of the house. My brother was a lot older, my sister was a lot younger, and they were both from Latin America, so we didn't have family around, you know, so I really had a very uh, solitary upbringing. And a lot of who I became was honed in those moments. A lot of reading. I love to read and I love to spend time in nature and fast forward all this <laughs> time. I still love to read and I still love to spend a lot of time in nature. But in order to, to get the attention, especially of my dad, who was my hero, of perfectionism became a very regular way of life for me. I was valedictorian at my high school, 4.6 GPA, captain of four varsity sports teams, class president, yada, 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 you know, dating the quarterback of the football team, <laughs> anything and everything to be Miss Susie High School. And, you know, as one can imagine, I was burning the candle at both ends in an attempt to 
be that perfect and that beautiful and that smart and that this and that. And I had some very severe eating disorders during that time, especially, you know, through the athleticism. And so I created in my body what we call the uh, female athlete triad, which means that my body was so malnourished that it was leaching the minerals from my bones. And so it literally creates early onset osteoporosis. So I had essentially early onset osteoporosis at 16 years old. And, and I think it was this state finals of my junior year, track team, track race or track meet. I broke my foot. I had a stress fracture for a long time and I refused to stop running. I broke my foot. And in that moment, like in the scene of, of my movie, <laughs> that scene is that moment. And I crossed the finish line and I literally fell. And I always see myself like falling in slow motion <laughs> in that moment that kind of fall from glory and plummeted really you know again I can laugh about it now because it is such that quintessential kind of hero or heroine's journey where I plummeted into this the deepest darkest of places that looked like a very severe suicidal depression for me for many years so suicidal depression very severe anxiety and these very severe eating disorders. And that was that really rich terrain for me to then rise from, starting very early, again, about 17. And so my particular journey, I did not go straight to the medicines because I didn't have access to them in full transparency. There was no, you know, I was growing up in Central California, very conservative area. But what I did have access to was, again, a lot of nature, uh, there was actually a, a Zen Buddhist temple nearby. I started to study Buddhism from from that really young age, and and that was so pivotal for me. So it's really getting going deep with mindfulness and meditation set a foundation for me that now, you know, is I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for for that foundation because I had that so deeply in place before I started doing the plant medicines. And it seems that as we look at psychedelic medicines coming into the mainstream, that there's a lot of concern that these medicines are held in a way with proper preparation mm-hmm. and proper integration. And that simply having uh, a ketamine treatment, for example, may open up one's eyes for a moment, for a few days, maybe a few weeks, but that we see that the depression returns. And I think that this integration piece is so important and and the proper preparation. And you mentioned being in nature as one of them and you know, meditation mindfulness. There's there's a, certain aspects of integration that are coming to the fore that no matter what the psychedelic experience is, that you have these pieces. When you were the um, head of the therapeutic department at Crossroads, how much integration was involved in that program? So, you know, a kind of a cute story is that when I first was asked to come on, I actually shared pretty strongly, you know, I think that we have what I would consider an incomplete product in that we didn't have our own aftercare. And so, you know, the program itself was seven days and we all know that seven days is just very limited. And we did have something that you know, I'm so, so grateful to our connection with Deanne Adamson and the Being True to You because we had coaches that would be paired with people before and after, and that is hugely important. And the the in-between step, especially, excuse me, for people who are going from such severe addiction to having a really safe place to go afterwards for a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, you know, to continue on that process of having a healthy environment, uh, healthy food. We were working with uh, Combo there to help them continue to do the physical detoxing. And so, yeah, I'm so grateful to Martine again, because I said, hey, we should have our own aftercare. And he was like, awesome, go for it. And I wrote a business plan and actually another brother of ours took that on and really started that, you know, as his main project that he that he heralded and stewarded. But we, you know, in, in that, I feel like we we began to have a true continuum of care. And, you know, as you were just saying, the 
the medicine work to me, to be fully honest, I'm, I have been stepping more and more away from the kind of fireworks of the peak experience because now the medicines are becoming so much more accessible and available. A lot of people obviously are going the underground route. Now there's a lot more beginning to be available above board. And really what I deeply care about is helping people to have the skill sets, the practices, the rituals, you know, to prepare themselves in a good way and then to anchor the information, all those downloads, all that new information. Where are you going to put it? You know, so I think of almost like helping somebody. I think I mentioned to you, it's like building a spiritual house or even more simplistically a closet, right? Like imagine you need to build your little shelves so that once you have all these new clothes, where are you going to put them? I think one of the challenges that psychedelic therapy has generally is around equal access and around the costs of these medicines. For example, MAPS's MDMA protocol involves two therapists, three sessions, a number of integration sessions, and overall that has a price tag in the tens of thousands. And I think that there's some concern that in order to make these medicines more accessible, that the, the care will be more limited and it'll be the integration piece that is, that is shuttered. So I'm kind of curious how you feel that the psychedelic community and the community of healers can most effectively provide good integration at an affordable cost based on the experience that you had with Crossroads. Did you find any solutions for that particular problem while you were doing the Crossroads work or you know, the aftercare stuff that you were discussing as coming in after the Crossroads work? Yeah, I mean, I really, actually going back to that piece where I was sharing, I don't, I don't call myself a healer. I think of myself more than anything as a transformational or spiritual doula or midwife. And really, if we want to anchor in more deeply into the doula piece, the connection between in the birthing world between a doula and a midwife, the midwife is the one who has the medical licensure, who has gone to nursing school and can perform certain procedures, so to speak, just like an obstetrician. And the doula is the peer-to-peer emotional support for the woman. And she works hand-in-hand with the midwife. But traditionally, that role was either the sister or the mother or the husband. And again, it's, it's this idea of, a, of peer-to-peer emotional support, even if there is money being exchanged. And so I'm really curious if we in the therapeutic world can start to see this pairing as powerful between the therapist and the doula, so to speak, so that we don't always need two therapists in the room for, say, the MAPS protocol and other protocols, and that that doula can also move forward with the person on more of a, again, kind of coaching capacity to support them to really integrate and to, you know, be accountable to the things that they themselves have said, like, oh, wow, I received X, Y, and Z, and great. So now you have an accountability partner, so to speak, to check in with once a week, twice a week, to see how it's going, you know, those commitments that you made to yourself. How's that going? And I also really believe in more, again, true peer-to-peer, even beyond payment You know, a lot of these groups that people can start themselves to get some friends together, you know, instead of a mastermind, it can be a a sharing circle. And I think that there's a lot of ways to get creative, to have community support that also still is, you know, being overseen, so to speak, by, you know, therapists and people who are really well-trained in this way. But I think we're going to start to move into more community led models moving forward and I and and that to me feels like a good way to make sure these things stay accessible. Mm. You know, it's it's quite serendipitous. I have a dear friend, her name is Brielle, and she is a doula and she was just asking me about getting into psychedelic integration. Mm-hmm. Very like a week ago. It was actually her birthday yesterday. And she works as a doula and she's really interested in, in, in psychedelic integration. And she asked me, you know, where can I get this training 
what groups can I participate with? And um, and so I was thinking, I was like, well, you know, if it comes up in my work, I'll find out for you. So here we are on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And so for Brielle and for people like her who who really are seeing their role in this spiritual doula role, which I think is a, is a powerful framing, where should they go to to connect with these communities? How can we find them? And and how can people like Brielle vet these communities or these practitioners or these teachers? Is it simply to do a program through somewhere like MAPS or CIIS in San Francisco? Or are there communities or groups that you personally would direct people to, to to get this kind of training and begin doing this work? Well, again, in full transparency, this is essentially the book that I'm writing. <laughs> is, well, this is great. Yeah. This could be a chapter, you know. This, yeah. So tell, tell me about which chapter of your book this covers so we can give a little preview before people can actually buy the book. Yeah. So, the, you know, this, this term of being a transformational doula, I think we, we focus so much. I also am very strongly in the birthing world. And I believe that end of life doulas are just so important and and undervalued and we don't talk about enough. And yet for so many years, my role has been right there in the middle. It's like, okay, the first shamanic experience of life of being born or giving birth, (laughs) the last shamanic experience of life of transitioning. And then there's so much fertile ground in one's lifetime (laughs) to go through a process of metamorphosis, which is the name of my book. Mm. And so this metamorphosis that we all have the opportunity to do, where some people, for example, we know in the older generations, we've seen it, people, you know, kind of stay the course for their whole life. And there's a big lesson that they need to learn. And and it's not really going to be anchored until the end of life and kind of the reincarnation. And in our generations, I think we're all becoming more and more aware that we can go through all of these kind of deaths and rebirths in real time. And so, again, a woman like me who believes so much in the power of the feminine and the ability for the feminine to hold such a safe place for people to do this deep, 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 really vulnerable, really scary work. And so that's something that I have been working on for years and and I'm excited to be holding. I do train women and want to be creating more group trainings to really learn the skills that it takes to hold space in such a good way and really allow the person in front of you to do all the work. Because again, just like in a birth, that woman is really doing all the work. We're there to like wipe the brow and be the cheerleader and like maybe, you know, grab a hip and like support the pelvis a little bit. But the woman is really doing all the work and the person and these experiences. That's why, again, I don't consider myself a healer because I'm not doing anything to the person. I'm setting for sure of the tone of the space to make sure that it's really trustable that it feels like everything is taken care of, you know, so that they don't have to worry about any of the external logistics or anything like that. But yeah, the person is really doing doing all the work. So I would love to work <laughs> with your beautiful sister. And again, I look forward to having more conversations. And these conversations are happening a lot in, you know, different pockets of women of like, okay, how do we open source our information and just share with each other? Because I also don't believe everything needs to be, you know, you go to school for thirty to $40,000 a year to learn you know, this information. That's why we end up in that place where we need the two clinical therapists, but then it costs a million dollars, you know? And so I'm really looking forward to supporting the movement of all these women. There are a lot of really powerful women doing this work to come forward as these transformational doulas and again, have legal safety because again, you're not the therapist, you're not the doctor, you're not prescribing anything. You're not even suggesting things. You're just sharing your own story and asking really poignant questions to the person who's in front of you and then supporting them with what they, you know, come forward with. Like then being, again, that really amazing cheerleader for like, okay, you got this, let's go. Mm. 
I think a very entry-level access point to this psychedelic peer support is something like the Zendo Project, mm-hmm. which I've been volunteering with for the past five years. Um, and that's a part of MAPS that does psychedelic peer support at festivals. And they do do trainings at festivals around the country. I think they're doing some online now. But that's, a, that's an interesting way of beginning to understand what it means to hold space. I think that's a great starting place. And yeah, I, I, if there is not yet an association of spiritual doulas, transformational doulas, I think that that's you know something that Maria, you're clearly going to have to help us with here, and help us bring everybody it. together. <laughs> um, and and so to kind of on the flip side of that. Ibogaine or iboga is amongst the family of psychedelic medicines the most potentially dangerous. If you do have a heart condition, the way that the medicine slows your heart can actually be fatal. And I think that's a really important thing that, particularly for underground therapy, that that people are very aware of. When when you were talking about your work at Crossroads, you're talking about an IV drip, some you know serious monitoring. I imagine some serious medical screening prior. Um, to that work, I, I didn't get that in Gabon. That's not how it's not how Iboga works in Gabon. But I think that it is important that we that we create a constellation of care and support where there are different people able to do different things, including this kind of like spiritual doula integration piece. And at the same time, that we do have some medical safeguards in place, particularly for a medicine like Iboga or Ibogaine, in ca- just in case, because you know there is not, there's nothing worse as a psychedelic healer than to actually cause more harm even to the point of death. So I just want to acknowledge that yeah, things do happen, you know, and this is the kind of a whole nother conversation, but how we view death in the Western world, that that's kind of the ultimate failure. And in truth, it's a transition, right? And so we're all going to transition in our own perfect right time. Our preference, obviously, is that that not be during one of these experiences. So even for myself, like I, you know, I went to go do my Iboga work in Costa Rica where there's legality, but not for they are it's not legal to do detox down there, but you can do psycho-spiritual work with the root bark in a very ceremonial context with witty initiates from Gabon. But I chose to do my own EKG here before, for example, which is really easy, it's really cheap. $50, you go to your local little clinic, you know, or, or whatever those those little centers are that you can go to and yeah it's just really easy to have that peace of mind of like okay I don't have a pre-existing heart issue great <laughs> because again as long as you don't have something pre-existing with your heart it actually the medicine is heart medicine it is really good for your for your body and it's very safe actually you know that's why in Gabon even though it's a little bits the children and pregnant women and elders, like everybody has a little bit. It's a root. For the listener who may be new to both Iboga and 5-MeO-DMT, we've talked a little bit about what that experience might be like. And I'm wondering if in the context of your own journey of healing and where you've come to this this real um, dedication to integration and community. If there is any experience that you've had either with the Aboga or the 5-MEO where you felt a clarity of an invitation to this path, can you give us a little snapshot into your own, one of your own journeys that has helped guide your life such that those who are unfamiliar with these medicines might have some feeling of what it might be like to go on one of these journeys? Sure. Well, again, I would love to just share that you know, I always call myself a, a reluctant medicine woman <laughs> because I didn't seek this work out. It really found me. It did really come to me. And so I'll never forget the first time, you know, it was a really big no to medicine work for a long time because of how erratic my internal landscape felt. <laughs> and because, you know, they had been trying to put me, they being my parents and, you know, the psychologist they sent me to then at that time in that 16, 17 year old moment, the only answer for them was pharmaceuticals. And the, that to me was like, here, you take the crazy pills because you're crazy. <laughs> right? And so I, my whole goal in my healing was to, was to create stability 
And so the last thing I wanted to do was was to go in there and shake things up even more. So again, just to be very clear, I, I did not kind of come out the gate. I was not a, a, a psychonaut when I was young. I, like I said, really set the foundation with uh, Buddhism, with time and nature, and actually with a lot of yoga, tai chi, nutrition was really important to me, keeping my body really clean after so many years of toxicity through binge eating and overdoing alcohol, etc. But anyhow, the moment that I finally kind of said yes, so to speak. I was at a juice cleanse retreat in Costa Rica at a place called Pachamama. And a woman, actually Parashakti, if anybody knows her, really amazing. She has the the Dance of Liberation platform. But she asked me if I wanted to pull a card. I said, okay, that's cute. You know, I didn't really think much of it. Pulled this card. And my question was, okay, what's the next chapter of my life? Like I knew I was on the precipice of something, but I didn't know what it was. And I'll never forget, it was an owl and it said one word, which was ceremony. And in that Mm. moment, it was like, wow, there's a whole nother world that's out there. You know, I had been, my whole life had been such an, an individual kind of, you know, isolated experience, so to speak. And that word ceremony meant more to me than just the medicine. It meant the community, you know, and the circles and like really coming together with other like-minded people and getting vulnerable and allowing myself to be seen in ways I never allowed myself to be seen before. So on that retreat, I was invited to my first three medicine ceremonies. (laughs) I'd never had an invite before. No one had ever invited me to any of these. And on that retreat, bam, right away. So my first one was a month later, actually. I did a a three-day initiation with Combo in Arizona. and and what is combo for those who might not know what that is? Yeah, so it's a medicine uh, that comes from the Amazon. It's a little green tree frog. The scientific name is the Philomedusa bicolor. And some people say cambo, some people say combo. Honestly, we always joke that both of those are wrong because the indigenous say something like compo. <laughs> it's totally different. So yeah, it's a it's a essentially topical. We burn the first layer of skin, apply the the venom, so to speak, the secretion of the frog, which can be harvested in a good way. I just want to actually be really clear about that, both with the frog and the toad. There's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. You know, we can just like anything go in very aggressively and just take, or we can come in with a really deep respect for the animal and for the spirit and kind of hold it in the hand and coax the medicine and again, harvest it in a good way. So anyhow, once that medicine is harvested in the jungle, for example, you would take the medicine straight from the frog's little back and put that fresh. But most of us are working with dried sticks that are are sent from, from the Amazon. And yeah, put it on the skin after you've drunk two liters of water medicine starts to work, really comes in. And like, I think we both feel that, that churning <laughs> we've experienced, the churning of the organs. <laughs> yeah. So essentially the body goes into a moment of being poisoned, right? But it's a very small amount of, of poison in the grand scheme of things. The body has a really strong and powerful response to it to kind of kick out the toxic, the toxicity. And in the act of kicking out the toxicity of the, of the venom, you also just kicking out a bunch of toxicity that's lying dormant in your body. So my first three days were so powerful. Again, we were, this is almost 10 years ago. So before the IAKP even existed, which is kind of a big organization that now trains practitioners all over the world. But back then it was not easy to find practitioners. So we had a little woman from Colombia, Carolina, and she, man, she she went for it. <laughs> she was gouging us big old dots, lots of medicine, very digital style of, of an, an initiation, excuse me. It was an initiation, a rite of passage to kind of show us what we were made of. And then on the fourth day, we did a crazy horse style sweat lodge. 
So super powerful cleansing. I mean, I purged every color (laughs) over those three days from like an almost black to a brown to a really deep yellow. And at the end of it, I felt bionic. I mean, after so many years of abusing my body again with with that binge eating and the and the alcohol that I met that I mentioned, I really felt that cleaning. I felt bionic on the other side, the purification of praying in the sweat lodge, which is one of the original kind of shamanic journeys. No external medicine. It's the medicine of heat and connection with the ancestors, connection with the fire, you know, being in the womb of the earth, which is a very, very, very powerful modality if anybody is is invited or has access. Yeah. And then a month after that, I ended up doing one of, still to this day, my most powerful Wachuma ceremonies of my life and really as I was sharing back in this, at this time, there was no, like, I didn't have access to shamans or practitioners. This was with a really dear family of natives and we made medicine ourselves. We harvested the medicine. We made it ourselves. Um, This is the San Pedro cactus. Yes. Yeah. The Wachuma. And so really working with it just straight from the earth. And that really awoke my roots, you know, my lineage, my father's from Peru and my mom's from Venezuela and a Peruvian. We come from the high Andes and the Huachuma is our lineage medicine for me. And again, in, in the Peruvian traditions, it's, it can be very complex with your offerings or it can be very simple. It can be like you have your medicine in your little bag, you have a rattle, you know, you climb a mountain, you make some offerings, you take your medicine, you sing some songs, and then you climb another mountain <laughs> and you do it all over again. So this way of working with the Wachuma, that is, um, yeah, to, to do the whole process, again, from the harvest to the making of the medicine to the preparing the, the stew for the family after, that really kind of sums up my preferences in the medicine world, which is we do it together. Again, we harvest these medicines in a really good way. The ethical harvesting is something, you know, and sustainable harvesting is something I also don't think is spoken about enough that these medicines are not just coming out of thin air. It's kind of like when your parents tell you there's no money tree. (laughs) I actually think that the money is printed much more freely than these medicines, right? They grow in regions where they are the sacrament of the indigenous there. And, And the Western world really has come in like a bull in a china shop and just grabbing what they want when they want it. And this mode of consumerism just like we consume a lot of things it's just kind of hand over fist of more is better and more is more so I just also want to highlight what I feel the importance of us part of why the integration you know I I kind of harp on it so much is because there's not medicine for us all to be doing medicine every weekend I don't think that that's the intention you know you you do your journey in a really good way you prepare for it really well, and then you spend as long as it takes on the other side to really anchor in all those lessons. And so for some people, that's a lifetime. Mm. I'm, I'm really happy that you presence that. I think that for many of us who have been on a medicine path, personally, there's a desire to collect them all, you know, like I want, I'm going to try this one and then I got to try this one and I got to go deeper in my healing. And I think that you can get attached to the effects and the kind of fireworks of the experience as sort of what um, Jamie Wheel calls an ontological addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, one can one can develop an ontological addiction. And I, I wonder, it's obviously you've brought up the issue of sustainability, the sustainability of the medicines themselves. Also, I think the marginalized communities that are often associated with these different medicines, uh, you know, the, the Bwiti people in the Congo Basin are, you know, some of the most dispossessed people in the world that are stewards of this, this extremely potent medicine. So, how do we now, as we are, uh, as these medicines are going more mainstream and people are understanding their healing 
power. And I think there will be more and more people compelled to go on these long, adventurous medicine journeys to go deeper in themselves. How do we as a community support that happening in a way that's in right relation, both with the sustainability of the plants and the animals themselves, to also the communities that hold them? What what can we do to be better stewards of the psychedelic healing renaissance itself? Yeah, well, I actually think this is a connection to one of your earlier questions of how can we make things more accessible, you know, across the board, even financially. I'm really such a proponent for this decriminalized movement that's happening to decriminalize nature. And I know I come, even though I have such a rich experience in the clinic that I'm ever grateful for, you know, being in that clinical world, my personal practice really is with plants and with these amphibians, so things that come straight from nature. And I am looking forward to a time where people really are able and feel safe and are educated to grow their own medicines and work with their own medicines, you know? So whether that's growing your own mushrooms and having your own cactus. And I do believe in the power of starting slow. You know, we talked a little bit about the microdosing in a past conversation of that kind of slow polish of instead of always needing to rip the Band-Aid off right away, that we can do that kind of slow polishing work of the ritual of, of microdosing. But I would say in the greater scheme of things is really doing your homework, you know, doing some research into who are local organizations in your area. There are a lot of Native American churches, for example, in the United States that are doing conservation work. You know, and you can go sit in legal ceremonies with them and reservations and things like this and and make sure that you're giving back, you know, that whoever is leading these ceremonies has some sort of connection to either giving back to a tribe that they're connected to or, again, working on conservation by planting more of whatever the medicine is. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of ways, but I think it takes us, again, this is where I say that the really sexy forward-facing conversation of like, yeah, let's go and do a medicine journey versus like, hey, let's take some time and really research and look in to who am I going to do it with and what does that person stand for? You know, what is their connection to the earth? What is their connection to, you know, to the original stewards of these medicines? I think these are important questions to ask. Are, are these questions that you'll be covering in your forthcoming book? Will we, will we get some of this information there? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and that's the, you know, my, my main platform is called Sacred Earth Warriors. And really, wow, this actually makes me emotional. It's kind of sweet. <laughs> You know, my original savior, so to speak, was this earth, you know, was going out. I grew up near Big Sur and just driving my car like there was no tomorrow and pulling over and running up a trail and just collapsing onto the ground and being held so deeply by our mother in ways that I never trusted a human to hold me and feeling my body register safety, feeling my body register peace, feeling my body register like, oh, there's somewhere on this planet where everything is okay. And so for me, all this work, like I love humans so deeply. And my original was like, okay, mama, I'm gonna take care of you, right? And so I do this work so that humans can realize we are part of something greater than ourselves, you know. I say this for better, for worse, but especially in the Western world, we've gotten so into like, oh, that person's a narcissist or this or that. And to be honest, I believe we're all on the spectrum <laughs> in the Western world, but that's how we've been raised. It's kind of like, you know, this conversation right now about racism of like, that you that's how you were raised if you were born in America into a white family this is how you were raised and it's the same way with with feeling like we are the center of the entire universe in the western world we were raised that way and so now as we are learning more of the fact that oh 
we're actually librarians for the earth. (laughs) We're record keepers for the earth. You know, we are gardeners for the earth. There's a beautiful book about the indigenous in California called Tending to the Wild. And we forget that as humans, we actually have a role here to be good stewards, to carry the wisdom, and also to make sure that we are gardening in a good way, so to speak. And so I call us, in this iteration of humanity, most people are accidental gardeners. (laughs) That's really beautiful. And I appreciate you offering your vulnerability Mm. here. It feels like... This conversation has wound ever deeper to that place of of what matters most to you. Mm-hmm. And I think from this from this place of what matters most deeply to you, what I like to do to close this podcast is to give you an opportunity to just speak directly to the ex- aspiring psychedelic healers, the aspiring spiritual doulas, the people who are listening to this to this conversation and who want to be part of this positive force of healing. What would you want to say directly to those folks who are who who want to be a part of this movement? Hmm. Yeah, I would first and foremost say to really listen. You know, to spend as much time as you can in connection to whatever you believe runs this whole thing. You know, to talk to your ancestors and to find your favorite place in nature where there's no external interference. We can really also get so clear and so in touch with the part of you that wants to be of service and and really tuning into what is mine to do. What is mine to do? Because there are so many facets to this and not all of it looks like becoming a shaman, you know, or Mm. serving medicine. There's a lot of, a lot of different facets and we need all those. We need the storytellers, you know, we need the, the researchers. We need the, again, these peer to peer listeners. We need it all. And so I would just say again, being the listening and not move, you know, not moving from the from the mind or from the ego, but really just watching what unfolds in front of you. And that was just circling back to the question you were asking about my experiences of like I pulled that silly little card that I thought at that moment. Oh, this is so silly. Pulling a card. Of course, now if you know me, you know I loved <laughs> pull cards for people. But yeah, a ceremony led to that invitation led to doing my really deep work, my initiations, my like really finding out what I was made of and then led to, you know, ceremony after ceremony after ceremony working with just some of the most humble people I've ever met, you know, and no part of me in that said, oh, I want to do this. I just said, you know, I keep getting invited to show up in a good way and to pray and I'm receiving benefit. I'm healing with every single, you know, time I sit down to pray. And so, yeah, I'll just say follow that for yourself. Whatever is continuing to bring you healing and to bring you joy versus your ego or your mind that tells you, wow, it'd be really cool to do this thing. Just follow the breadcrumbs. Mm. Mm, that's a beautiful, beautiful invitation. Yeah, I, I remember feeling that, oh, it'd be so cool to be a psychedelic therapist. I would be, I would be this, you know, astral being for this person. <laughs> and that first desire was so wound up in my own desire to be seen, you know? So it wasn't because I was a horrible narcissistic person. It was like, oh, I could be this vision I have. And that's actually what kind of brought me into doing the psychedelic first aid or the psychedelic peer support with the Zendo. And um, that's when I learned that most especially in the psychedelic realm, although it was a lesson that has now seeded in, in all of my relationships, that as you've pointed out, it's not about healing, it's about creating uh, support and space for someone's own healing to happen. And uh, yeah, if you want to be a healer so that you can be the star of the show, you're not... You know, you might want to be a you might want to be a comedian or an actor instead, because <laughs> that's the show that people have signed up to watch. Absolutely. Not necessarily the show of your of your who wants to be a shaman show. Um, yeah, I really like that invitation. <sighs> 
Well, Maria, I appreciate you being here with us today. And it feels like it went by so fast. (laughs) So we will have to have another conversation or future public conversations as we've had many private conversations. And just to end today, how can people follow you, support you? We've talked about this upcoming book and I'm sure that some of our listeners will want to be aware of when that becomes available. How can people follow you? Yeah, so my website is sacredearthwarriors.com. So www.sacredearthwarriors.com. And you can go on there and become part of my mailing list. And yes, this metamorphosis book is also has a companion, a 12-week companion program, which is, as I was sharing all about, building that spiritual house and really getting your your daily practices and routines really, really dialed in. Because as I've shared, I, I feel that enlightenment is a moment by moment, <laughs> day by day practice. And my Instagram is also Sacred Earth Warriors. And I would just love to interface with anybody who has questions of any kind. You know, I, I do believe the community aspect of all of this is so deeply important. And, and I'm quite an, an open source human. So I look forward mm. to hearing from anyone who has any questions. Beautiful. Well, thank you again for being on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. And if you want to connect with Maria, we'll have that information in the show notes. And also, if you join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group, we will be in there speaking more, connecting more, so you can come come visit us. And uh, yeah, thanks again for being on the show. It's so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.